Hello there. Uh, this is Andre Darmanin once again from uh, Urban Equity Consulting and the host of Global Conversations. Uh, today we are going to be talking about the nuances and complexities of cultural diversity. And I want to put this in a little bit of context, understanding what cultural diversity uh, really is and, and the nuances about it. So let's start about the nuances itself. Um, you know, cultural nuances are differences in the way people uh, in different cultures think and feel and behave. They can be small in terms of the way we greet each other, like the way, like religion and politics in itself. But also cultural nuances can make it hard for people from different cultures to understand each other. Uh, but it makes life actually interesting. Uh, sometimes it could be funny in terms of in terms of those conversations. But all speaking aside, there could be some difficulties uh, in that. Um, so yet harnessing cultural diversity in the workplaces is crucial in supporting the staff from a variety of cultural backgrounds to be to be their best and generate actual results. So I've decided to put this into two parts here. So the first part of this conversation uh, will be with my guests who are both authors and uh, and professor. Uh, actually, I shouldn't say that. That's for somebody else. Sorry. It's actually they're both professors. Yes. Um, and one is an author, Nitin, uh, Nitin Deka, and, uh, and the other is uh, Rene Bati-Kluk. Uh, so, um, so we'll be talking about the cultural diversity uh, uh, in itself, and uh, I'm looking forward to having this conversation. So welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So, you know, I, I just want to start off by saying, you know, it was you know, we had an amazing conversation when we had the the pre-discussion uh, in in terms of uh, in terms of how we're going to uh, go with this uh, go with this webcast, go with the direction of the webcast. But of course, I know you two in in separate occasions. I mean, Renee, we've you know, first of all, you know, you and I have had conversations on a variety of issues. I think this is the the third or fourth time we've had a conversation virtually. Uh, sooner or later, it's going to have to be in person one of these days. But uh, but yeah, so I mean, uh, you know. You know, I've known you through the cultural intelligence space, and of course, your 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 work in and itself. So, uh, let's start with you, uh, Renee. Uh, you know, tell us about yourself, about the work that you do, and uh, and how you got to doing what you're what you're doing right now. Great. First of all, thank you, Andre, so much for having me. And Nitin, it's really good to be uh, here together. My name is Renee Bahati Klug. My pronouns are she, her. I am situated right now in Phoenix and the ancestral territories of the Aki, Mel Otham, Peeposh, and the Hohokam Native communities whose care and keeping of the lands allows us to be here today. Before I even begin, I will be talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion and culture from a US lens, United States lens. I know we have multiple countries uh, represented today. So when I do talk, I'll try to situate all of my comments uh, in US base. I uh, was started off as an English professor. I was doing that for 17 years across the US and overseas. And I moved into training faculty and staff about 10 years ago in the university setting. It was through that work that I developed a framework and approach to cultural intelligence. It's different than uh, how most people use it, but it very much situates us in understanding how we feel, think, and act as we are engaging with people who are different than we are. So I have a DEI consultancy or leadership consultancy called Culturally Intelligent Training and Consulting. Like I said, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. I have three children. I've been with my spouse for 
going on 17 years. And I uh, am an author, a, a traveler, and an avid fan of um, a lot of things fun, in especially uh, drinking wine and uh, listening to <laughs> Freddie Mercury. That's a good way <laughs> to segue. <laughs> Listen, <sighs> there's so much hard there are so many hard conversations I have to have on my day to day that I've got to have some levity. So anyway, that's me. Um, oh, and how did you? Well, I mean, well, I mean, I guess you did talk about how you got into the business. So um. yeah, I did. I uh, they my my teaching was quite inclusive, and I worked with a lot of culturally and linguistically diverse diverse students, and based on uh, my reputation, they wanted me to move into training. And as I did that, what I learned in some of the training as well-meaning people would come in and ask me what Chinese people thought or how do black people behave? And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And you know, I mentioned Chinese people specifically because uh, at that university, China was the number one represented uh, culture for international students. So sometimes it would be these blanket kind of topics that people wanted me to talk about and it just is not possible. So I developed this approach to cultural intelligence to help us recognize that it's not just learning about other people, but it's learning about individuals as it relates to their cultural context. So we'll talk about culture in a minute. And it also has to do with understanding ourselves, how we relate what we know, what we don't know, how our behavior impacts others. So it's all of these different nuances that's really embedded in emotional intelligence. So that's how, and then people started learning about my work and that's how the business was formed. And here we are. All right, thanks Renee. Um, so Nitin, I mean, you know, we've been, we've been connected with each other on LinkedIn for quite some time and, uh, and you know, and then, once I made this call out for for having this talk about cultural diversity, you just reach out to me like that and say, "Hey, let's you know let's have a conversation," and uh, and yeah, and I mean I knew that Renee, her you know like I said, her and I have been connecting on various levels, and I was like, okay, how can I get Renee involved somehow, and how can I have a guest <laughs> on this on this webcast? And it's like, all right, here it is, perfect example. Then as soon as we had the the three of us talking, it was like. Boom, we both hit it off and we both knew that this was this was going to be a conversation that was going to be amazing. So so Nitin, same questions to you. Just go ahead. Okay, well, thank you, Andre, and, and thank you, Renee. And it is a, it's a great pleasure to be here. I don't know where to start. I think I've gone on this kind of accidental uh journey. You know, there's an accidental that's film accidental tourist. In a way, I've kind of become uh that process. Uh, began with anthropology, uh, my sort of my training, as I say to people, is in cultural anthropology, urban anthropology, and it allowed me to study in the United States, allowed me to do field work in the United Kingdom, uh, which is also the place of my birth. So I've had some exposure to different locales and how, uh, I guess, culture um, operates in different places, at least in the um, in English speaking world. And but I'm based in Toronto, Canada, and I'm really very fortunate because uh, I grew up here. I went away and I've come back and uh, the, the conversations um, are very interesting as I uh, some, I kind of worked a little bit um, in advertising um, in New York. I had to sell pet food. Uh, 
and uh, you know, catch out. And then I kind of fell back into teaching and I think I became this generalist. And I didn't, you know, I taught a whole range of different social sciences. I began to teach police officers. I began to teach early childhood educators, professionals. And, and then it led me to thinking about, well, I actually don't know how to teach really. Because when you do a PhD, you don't really learn how to teach. You learn how to do research, but you don't know how to teach. And so I did a, a training and development certification uh, at one of our local universities. And I think that got me thinking about how I could expand. Uh, what I like to do in terms of in the in in terms of with people and students and the idea of learning and the application of learning, I was getting more and more students who were professional learners. And gradually, you know, uh, because I taught such a different range of things, uh, intercultural communication became one of the electives that I jumped on and allowed me to to really reach a whole range of people. It led to me developing a program. Uh, like a certificate program for a continuing education program at McMaster University um, in Southern Ontario. And also from that, uh, some other courses around um, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging were being developed and incorporated. Um, I also have a course to call Transition to Work. So it's sort of preparing students for the labor market of the workplace. And so that made me uh, get into contact with recruiters and learning what they were doing um, so that led to a, um, a current research project around gender inclusion in police recruitment. And uh, as you know, you know, the whole issue of police and recruitment has been at the heart um, of this whole kind of really, you know, curiosity and explosion of diversity, equity, inclusion. And I think it's still developing, but, you know, that's sort of where how I've come into it. And I think the, the anthropology, the culture concept has always been sort of deeply rooted at me, tied with intercultural communication and then the diversity, equity, inclusion focus is sort of where I am now and gradually doing other different kinds of projects, uh, a lot of curriculum development, training facilitation work um, as it comes, as I sort of structured around my core practice of teaching undergraduates. Great. Uh, that was uh, thank. That was uh, that was great to hear. I mean, I know you know both you and I are situated in Southern Ontario and in, in Toronto, so so you know there's going to be some sort of uh, I, I guess you can kind of call it an, an international, although albeit North American, but still international. American. But I'm pretty yeah. sure. But I'm pretty sure that a lot of uh, a lot of uh, people from abroad can relate uh, in terms of what we'll be discussing here. So so yeah so. Let's let's you know let's start really off, quickly. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, sure. No, I just wanted to say I forgot to mention this. Um, I am a Punjabi American, so I'm a first generation U.S. born uh, person. My dad is from India, and and my mom is Irish, Polish, and French, so uh, native of Arizona. So I wanted to self-identify quickly that before your global audience. And I don't know if Nathan, you want to as well. My self-identifications are very long, but uh, well, you know, my <laughs> parents are uh, were uh, from India, from the western part of India. It's a state called Maharashtra, uh, which most people don't know. Uh, but I, I say Mumbai or Bombay, that helps a little bit. And then they migrated to London, England, where I was born. And then when I was around four, uh, my sister and I, we moved to Toronto, Canada. So that's so we've got so that. we've got the. Uh... The, the migration the Indian contingent if we will and, yeah. I, and I, you know and I mean my my partner she's she's uh Indian as well so I mean so I have it all around me regardless <laughs> so um <laughs> yeah so so there we go so anyway uh off off on off on a great start here so 
So let's let's dive right in for for a moment. So we talk about cultural diversity. We're talking about cultural diversity now, but you know, with with organizations, they talk about organizational culture in one way. They separate diversity in another way. Um, so yet there is a there is a little bit of a complexity with that in the sense that cultural diversity comes together as a package. So and yet they don't have a real uh, grasp on cultural diversity as a whole. So, um, Renee, I know you, we talked at the outset uh, before we, we got on air about about your experience and what you do when it comes to uh, promoting or prioritizing cultural diversity and inclusion. Uh, so tell us about your situation and then and then Nitin, uh, we can we can uh, go from there. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, it, when we serve as leadership and organizational change consultants, when we walk into any sort of initial training or consultation, we of course are going in there to promote an organizational culture of inclusion. So that, you know, is your big umbrella. But then when you go into the individual level, we recognize that people have different social and cultural identities that deserve recognition. Why? Because as we walk into any space, our ability status, whether we have visible or invisible disabilities, our age, our gender identity and expression, our sexual orientation, religion, politics, even socioeconomic standing, whether that be in childhood or adulthood or both, all of these are aspects of, of our social and our cultural identities that inform who we are and how we engage the world and how we engage each other. As we come together, we create organizational culture. But if any one or many of those identities are excluded, are maligned, are felt like we, we can't show up in a certain way, and I don't necessarily advocate for bringing our whole selves to work, I think that can be problematic. But as we come together in the workforce, if any of those identities are seem to be um, overlooked, it can really detract from the holistic organizational inclusion that we want leaders to achieve. Recognizing in the United States that most leadership happens to be comprised of very singular dominant identities, specifically white, male, certain age group, usually without visible disabilities, that last one's up for grabs. And as, as that stands, a lot of policy and practice has not just been created and driven by, but also in support of people who share those identities. So as we move into re recreating organizational culture to be more inclusive, we want to make sure that those policies and practices recognize the diversity of bodies that are there. And then we have representation, which is different than diversity. Diversity is the fact. Representation is whether or not the people in our organization and especially in our leadership represent the clients that we seek to serve and even the communities that surround us. So, and culture in this case comes from the Latin root word cultus, which means to nurture, to tend to the earth, to grow. So I like that connection. And I'll stop there to let Nitin uh, take it away. Yeah, Nitin, um, you know, 
we were talking about multiculturalism in that sense too. So, and we may look at it differently from what our American part, our, our neighbors uh, discuss. Uh, so yeah, Nitin, uh, you know, talk about what, uh, what your thoughts are on this. So uh, we were, I, this is a good point uh, to think about. I, I do feel there's sometimes a, a disconnect between uh, organizational culture and really applying a really robust cultural notion to the to the organization. And I think uh, just I mentioned before intercultural communication, and that has given me a lot of ways to think about uh, concepts such as communication styles, you know, conflict styles, uh, cultural worldviews. If we can kind of leave in or embed some of these ideas and intertwine them with a lot of great work happening around equity, diversity, inclusion, because um, that EDI work brings in power, privilege, those kinds of concepts, which are is not often found in intercultural communication and bring them together. And I think that we can have a much more robust conversation whereby organizations can look at culture, not just like, you know, what they strategically envision in the C-suite and just kind of chop down approach and why doesn't everyone have this, but really taking what is happening ground up, where are the conflicts, where are the collisions, where are the misunderstandings? And, you know, those, as Renee was describing, all those intersectionalities of various identities and just only having them listed, um, that's the beginning, but actually for, for all of us to have a deeper sense of that lived experience of embeddedness. And it has to be, you know, as we live in these very dynamic places with people moving, shifting, you know, North Americans are very mobile. They are moving around. Um, they're uprooting themselves and remaking themselves. And certainly with, you know, in the case of Toronto, it's like, it's a, it's a, you know, a polyglot place with multi, multi-languages, multi-religions, multicultures, whatever, um, intertwining. And even, you know, one label does not hold everyone, uh, doesn't sort of embrace everyone equally. And I think even disentangling some of that in an organization, um, at least being aware of that can give us a sense of, you know, where could the obstacles be, but also where could there be some strength? Uh, because if you can create those conversations with unlikely, you know, uh, partners, if you will, who may not be in different, they might be in different parts of the organization, different functions of the organization, they have to find ways to communicate and collaborate, you might end up with a, um, you know, a stronger institution. So I feel that aware that often the disconnect is, is that we want, we want to celebrate the diversity, uh, we showcase that, but then the complexity of that the messiness of, of that, um, we don't really want to get, you know, too involved. And I think the part of it is also the time factor. And I think it is important that that idea of, you know, sitting with that discomfort has to be part of the strategy. If you're thinking about a long-term whatever, long-term growth, long-term innovation, long-term, you know, employee engagement, we see such um, low employee morale across all sorts of organizations. And part of it is the organizational culture and people are tuning out um, and tuning, you know, and they are sort of seeing a little bit of this. I even see this amongst my students, my professional learners on their discussion boards. Some of them are, you know, they are kind of, um, what are they, what, they're kind of prisoners in the training room where they've got to take, you know, implicit bias training or equity inclusion training. And, you know, in the learning management system, there's a checkbox effect, but they haven't changed their real understanding of anything. And so long-term, it's not very effective. So I think part of that problem is the organizational culture. There's lots of, uh, if you think about an iceberg model, often there's so many things that are submerged and 
you need to take that time to create those difficult conversations. Uh, and uh, and sometimes people don't feel like they can be heard in, in many of these training spaces. So recognizing how do you create different opportunities for engagement? Yeah, that's well said. And I neglected to say, excuse me, part of our cultural identities, of course, are ethnic and racial heritages. And in the United States, because race has been embedded in so many historically ex exclusive spaces, particularly among our, our Black constituents, our Native American constituents, of course, Asians um, and uh, Latina uh, populations, there has been a lot of reckoning that has been happening. And so that has come to the forefront of our conversations. And we always want to recognize that and as well as those other identities that I mentioned. But what Nitin is saying is absolutely a fact that so many leaders want diversity and they wanna celebrate that, but very few actually want to do the work to change their behaviors to be inclusive of that diverse population. Yeah, no, and, and I agree with you both. And I think there's, you know, that's why I was trying to get to the point of, of the fact that there seems to be a mismatch between, you know, how people where we talk about cultural fit, a term that I just despise immensely, uh, versus how we embrace diversity in and itself. So putting those two together, sometimes are not, you know, for lack of a better term, they don't fit with each other. Mm -hmm. So this is where we have these types of you know complexities with with this type of work and in, in terms of what we do so uh so yeah so these are these are things that that i've that i've been hearing from the both of you when it comes to when it comes to this and uh and yeah so um i want to i want to get into another point here let's dive into not only you know we're talking about from an organizational culture perspective now we're talking about it from the personal perspective and, and there's this is a two-part question on this uh, let's start with the first one where we come with uh, cultural stereotyping and prejudices are just are generally discriminatory um, and generally speaking, uh, you know, within an organization or within the, 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 the realm of our populations, we talk about the perspective of white versus other cultures. But what about the complexities of racial racialized discrimination in the workplace between different cultures that are not white? Um, it equally impacts diversity, inclusion, belonging, and equity. So, so Nitin, you know, in your experience, how do you think we should how do you think we should address this and and embrace those cross cultural differences? I know you've talked about from a from a cross cultural communications aspect, but um, can we dive in a little bit uh, deeper to that? And, and then, of course, Renee, you can chime in afterwards. Well, uh, sure. I think part of it is uh, there has to be some kind of historical perspective. I think, how are we positioned? I mean, we talked about, you know, our own ethnic heritage, our migration stories, like, how does that come to be? Understanding a little bit of about that, you're not going to under, we're still learning more and more about those things. But, you know, there is various kinds of complexity to structures of, you know, colonization, of dispossession, of oppression, of slavery, of, you know, uh, prejudice of various different kinds that have different weight. And you know it's important to recognize that differential weight. I think in the conversations that we have, and begin to acknowledge that, such that you know the for some, you know the cultural identities may be more 
I guess, closer to how they define themselves. For others, there may be this experiences of racialized discrimination in terms of how they define themselves. And then there's also complexities if we think about conversations of whatever mixed means, um, you know, multiracialities. I mean, that's a very complex realities for more and more people of our world. Um, and in fact, that might be even kind of a way to think about it rather than these ideas of these um, ethnic groups as very bounded or racial groups as bounded spaces. And we kind of put a listing. Uh, certainly we do that in, in Canada with our census. We've got this idea of visible minority, which is a social construction. And, you know, we say visible to whom, right? Uh, it, it implies that sort of a white unmarked norm. Um, and uh, but it doesn't include indigenous peoples. It's very hard for people who are uh, multiracial or biracial, what have you, to fit into those kinds of boxes. So I think when we when we we've got to really have a, a deeper understanding of even what race is. Every year I ask my students, what's the difference between ethnicity and race? And it's by no means clear. Sociologically, it's their distinct concepts, but in terms of how we use them, like the, the lay person. So, just in our culture, we've got a lot of confusion. So in terms of cross-cultural differences, I think, again, if we go back to this idea of culture a little bit more deeply and to think about those worldviews, those styles of conflict styles, where those might come from, uh, that might that might help us understand each other a little bit more. And then the other issue, I think, when you're talking about, um, you know, beyond just the white and uh, non-white kind of discrimination, the, I guess you were talking about between groups. And the different positionings, and I think you know uh, this goes to a U.S. context. But I was reading about the the issues around um, affirmative action. Uh, I believe it was in California, but uh, in terms of university admissions, this is going to be heard in the U.S. Supreme Court. And you saw in terms they had some uh, this is from the New York Times, and they had some breakdown in terms of how um, different voters or citizens felt about it. And it is really complex because it means different things for different people because it connects to ideas around um, academic opportunity and merit and these other kinds of ideas. So I don't think we can think that people are all going to be one way or think of one thing. It's going to be, again, their experience of racialized discrimination of oppression is going to be connected to various lived experiences, to historical circumstances, and maybe other things they've experienced in terms of their migration journeys uh, to North America. And I think, it's important to have that sense of that range of experience. It doesn't all look the same. And there's both the biographical narratives as well as probably some connections with similarities with uh, various groups. Mm. I don't know if that helps. That's that's part of it. I mean, I want to yeah. get into the, to the uh, you know, when Renee gets into it too, I want to get into the whole academic side of things because both of you are academics mm. and you just raised a point about, about California and um but uh you know before i get into that renee if, if there's something you want to add to the conversation as well well i'll add specific context that's of course u.s based but listen i think what you were saying especially about multi ethnicity and raciality sometimes as it is because there are differences between the two again both socially constructed well at least race and but when you talk about racialized discrimination uh andre you know, what's even happening in Florida right now under Governor Ron DeSantis is that they governmentally and statewide, because within the United States, each state has autonomy over the, the public education system and, and what's allowed and not allowed and so forth. So in Florida, they have rolled back any sort of educational mandates 
regarding uh, historically black narratives, meaning that essentially any sort of narratives that talk about the enslavement of black people has been erased and taken out. And if there are teachers who want to allow their students to teach, to learn that, these, student, these teachers often get fired. I mean, it's awful. But at the same time, Florida specifically has pushed forward a requirement to have Asian American education. So this now is a pitting against of two different racial identities, both which have been historically excluded in the United States, but one, the Asian American population has been stereotyped positively, if you will, but it can be it can be quite negative in the grand scheme of things because of the uh, the emotional oppression it can have of the model minority myth that Asian Americans somehow or Asian immigrants somehow behave differently and maybe quote unquote in a better way than other immigrants. And it's it's false. It is rooted in a stereotype and it perpetuates a cultural and even a family myth uh, to the exclusion of so many people. And I think to the it, it negatively impacts the mental health of many Asian Americans or Asians in general. Um, we saw this come out, I think it was in Florida, but I could be uh, wrong on that, where there was an uh, Asian American male who got like a 1590 on the standardized academic test, the SAT, I can't even remember what it stands for. It's been a long time since I was in high school. And he got that and he also had like a 4.6 GPA and typically GPAs are like 4.0 is the top. So this person is a superstar academically and did not receive admission to six different Ivy League or high level institutions. And this uh, student blamed it on affirmative action. And it was really an anti-black sentiment if you're really if we're really being honest. And if you look like if you look at the statistics in Ivy League enrollment and enrollment into the six specific schools that he had applied to and not gotten into, you can see that yes, the majority of enrollment there is white, but a lot of that is legacy enrollment, meaning if their parents, grandparents, so forth have gone there, they do kind of have this this extra ability to get in. But the second, and sometimes even the first, depending on the school, demographic of students is Asian. So there is a large Asian representation at these schools, yet somehow this student felt that he wanted to go public with this very anti-Black narrative to justify why he didn't get in. Now, I don't know why he didn't get into those six schools, but in terms of what you're talking about, Andre, that this racialized discrimination that happens in pitting different racial groups against each other, it's happening a lot, especially right now. Yeah. And, uh, and Nitin, you know, I mean, let's, let's bring it back to yeah. the Canadian context. I mean, what we're seeing in Quebec, right? With, yes, uh, Bill, Bill I was thinking of Quebec. Yes. Yeah. See, with Bill 96, and of course, prior to Bill 96's uh, uh, passing. So basically, uh, Renee, it's a uh, it's a bill. I, I don't know the whole specifics of it, but it's a bill that basically says that you you know, in order to be, it's it basically a French first um, 
bill that in terms of language in term so to strengthen the french language within quebec because they they have this fear that the french language is is diminishing um and uh and with that it's um it creates a, a problem especially with new immigrants to quebec where uh in this perspective they um you know some immigrants have only six months to learn the language otherwise they lose their jobs right or you know and and i believe that's that's part of it i'm not uh, you know don't quote me on everything but that's part of the part of the issue um so so even that you know you're pitting french canadians uh, and normally those are ones who are white versus those who are new immigrants i mean mind you there are black such as haitians and those from martinique who are who are french speaking but then those who come from non-french speaking nations or even algeria or, or morocco and whatnot but then those who come in from from refugee state uh, those who are refugees and whatnot there's a problem um and of course you know then there's become the issue now we're flipping on the other side of of non-french speaking white people versus french speaking white people so even that there's that cultural uh nuance if you will or based on language so language. so nitin i mean i i'm i hope i've summarized it well enough but i think i think that's the gist of it here here in the in the problem well here in canada yes uh i think it's been interesting with the uh it's the the it's again uh, it's the um the Legault government, um, you know, the the, the CAC, they're calling the Colifion Avenue yeah. du Québec. Uh, and he, uh, certainly pro-Francophone um, uh, policy, but uh, the interesting also, other, there's been other policies as well, which has been, uh, you're speaking about discrimination in terms of people with any, wearing religious symbols in the public sector. So any kind of, you know, so for example, a turban or a hijab, for example, um, you're not allowed to work in the public sector um, if you wear those things. So it is, there is there where you've got, it becomes both religious based, but it gets also racialized because some religions will have much more uh, visible kinds of identification patterns than others. Um, and some can be more easily concealed, let's say, what have you. So it does have a differential impact, even though they are trying to uphold secularism. So they're taking kind of um, a French model, like from France, this idea of secularism and equality. And interestingly, France is a country in which you can't even measure um, ethnicity and race because they don't even, there's no way to do it statistically. It's very different. Mm -hmm. So even to have uh, you know, we talk about the importance of data. That's been an interesting conversation also. Uh, but so in Quebec, they've got this idea that there there is no racism. Even the premier has said that, um, even though, again, if you go back to what I mentioned before with policing, uh, if you go back with employment, if you go about with access to housing, um, all sorts of different kinds of institutional discrimination is evident. And not just only in Quebec, but across the country. And I think another kind of complexity where we've seen um, you know, I mentioned the visible minorities, and I think another way um, with the label of BIPOC, it's just become another bundling without understanding. With and BIPOC B for Black, I for Indigenous, and then POC people of color. Uh, again, what are the connections? What are the what are the similarities of experiences? I'm not even sure how many conversations you ha we would have as a this large grouping of people. You know, for, in terms of fora. They think, well, instead of having all these different, you know, black experiences or indigenous experiences or people of color experiences can be so vast, we'll find the one BIPOC person, you know, so all of that diversity become reduced to kind of this singularity. So this is the other kind of way, which 
think works like kind of like a discrimination because rather than understanding the depth and range of experiences, it becomes sort of reduced into this kind of box as well. And I think that breeds discontent because people then feel, you know, why that person and not me? Why, who's being represented? Who's being further excluded, even though BIPOC is supposed to be more inclusive. So it's kind of like a, a, a new kind of discrimination that's happening um, as well. So I think it, um, and then the other idea uh, that I was thinking about is, again, if we go back to the sense that, you know, the idea about power, um, there's an old sociological concept in Canada called the vertical mosaic. We like to think about ourselves as multicultural, but I think, Renee, you talked about social class, and I think that is a, a concept that has become lost. And I think it's implicit in the model minority myth and the whole idea of Ivy League admissions, uh, or whatever it is, or elite, elite things, is that what is happening here, there, there are these intersections. I think in certainly in the US, it's been a more robust debate about, you know, wealth, like there's income inequality, but then there's wealth inequality. And those wealth disparities are really, really huge. And they're not no one is going to solve that with like one policy or one strategy or what have you. Like this is multi-generational. So I feel um, a little bit, um, I don't know if pessimistic is the right world, but I think the gap might be actually getting larger because now we're, we are really, we're kind of, these are going globalization and the impact of people moving around the world and just our economy. And you also have the impact of, um, you know, technology and, if people even have jobs in the future because of AI and what have you, it's if we go back to that education piece, what are people learning? What kind of skills are they going to have in the workplace? Just having like um, you know um, an EDI platform, we may not be addressing some of the re the, the most dire situation needs, uh, whereby people are really being feeling multiply excluded, and it could be race, it could be social class, it could be all all sorts of things lack of access to uh, resources. And I don't know what the pathway is for uh, for those people to, you know, to have um, a way to participate, a way to grow, a way to prosper in this kind of changing society. So I think those those are also as layers of, of discrimination. And I think we have to add the issue of some kind of issue of social class, um, which, you know, and I, I would argue, you know, for me, certainly higher education has been, has led to mobility because it's also in terms of how people perceive you, you know, uh, with these degrees or with these positions or what have you, there comes responsibility as well. But to acknowledge that this is happening and even, you know, our educational systems, um, we like to think we're reaching everyone, but all across there, it's still the individual, you know, both the United States and Canada are strong individualist cultures. And so there's lots of individualist success, like you can find them from any group, any gender, any whatever, any sexual uh, sexual orientation, what have you. But overall, there's still lots of discrimination and prejudice mm -hmm. and inequities. And what I'm really hearing coming out from this uh, conversation, thank you for the, uh, his, the lesson on what's going on in Quebec. It, there's a lot of nationalism rising up. It's this idea that yes, we have a, a globalization we, and our global majority does happen to be non-white. But with this said, we want to preserve whatever construct and concept we have of what our nation is supposed to look like, how it's supposed to speak, how people are supposed to go about representing themselves physically. 
And this is to the exclusion of so many different kinds of people. And it's, it's, it's quite uh, harrowing. And, and I don't know what to, what to make of it. There are a lot of strategies to put in place, but to Nithin's greater point of the economic disparities, people in power tend to want to stay in power and people in power tend to have the purse strings. And when that is the case, sometimes uh, freedoms in the way that we are talking about freedoms that are, are situated around equity and personal expression sometimes are compromised. And and so now, you know, as I'm listening to this conversation, I'm starting, you know, I'm starting to, th there's a few angles I like to go with this, but I think the, the major one is, you know, first we talk about, you know, class, and I know we, we at the outset, we never really, you know, wanted to discuss caste, but at the same time, there is that, there's a twofold happening here. Number one, especially with you, Renee, when you talked about Asian culture, and I know I've had a, a previous conversation with uh, Jolene Jang, where we talked about Asian inclusion. And I'll put that in the, in the, in the speaker's notes, but, you know, also there's that whole factor of number one, we box Asians as a whole, you know, and so there should be, there should be um, a category for, you know, East Asian, Pacific Islanders, and then South Asians, right? We talk about this AAPI or, you know, we just came off of, um, you know, Asian American, Asian Heritage Month here in Canada, AAPI Heritage Month in the US. But then there's the complexities of the intercultural differences and nuances and complexities, especially, especially within the South Asian culture. So, um, to the both of you, I mean, Renee, let's let's start with you. You know, um, you know, the, with the fact of cultural diversity, um, you know, being a South Asian, and how conflicts can arise based on position and where locate or people locate differently. You know, uh, how do you think administrators, organizational leaders, politicians, in both local and uh, global landscapes, could be approaching this differently? Oof, it's a big question. <laughs> um, so, you know, when we talk about just India in general, um, we know that there's still an existing caste system and there's colorism. So racism is when often there are people who are white are, are creating policies, practices to the exclusion of people who are non-white within colors, within cultures where the people are all non-white, but gradations of, of brownness. Then we have the oppression of different shades of brownness. And that's that happens all over the world. And specifically, as you said, uh, India. And then within India, there are, I think there are 119 official languages. Then you come to the other side with people like me who were not white and were not Indian growing up because of my biraciality and the fact that I was a, a, one of the newest generations to be able to experience that because of the immigration laws and the marriage laws in the United States, which uh, interracial marriage was not legalized until the late 60s here throughout the country. Anyway, what does this have to do in, with organizational culture and structure and what leaders need to be thinking about? Well, it really depends on who comprise, who's comprised within the organization. When you have an organization that has a number of immigrants from different countries, not only now are we dealing with organizational culture within our specific 
uh, nation, whether that be the US or Canada. But now we have uh, the microcosms that, and all of the cultural nuances that people bring in from their respective cultures, whether that, and that could be the, the caste system, which looks at economics and all sorts of things. It can be colorism. It can be religion. Uh, that's just three. And then also you have gender dynamics. And I know within the academy, what we're finding, and not just with students uh, and faculty from India, but from many different nations, that a lot of times some faculty members might hire student workers or research assistants from their respective nations and uphold practices within those nations that are quite oppressive that might be based in the caste system, that might be based in whatever power dynamics, that definitely uh, are to the, do not promote a culture of belonging specifically for that research assistant. And, and so I'll, I'll stop there. And I think I've addressed your question. It was a big question and I'll let Nathan take over. Oh my goodness, that's quite. This is a this is a difficult question, uh, <laughs> Renee. I was really glad you connected caste to power because I think that's a very important nuance. And I think even how people position themselves is. You might suggest, I mean, um, like a theory of interest. Like people are, you know, they want to expand uh, um, their own influence. Um, they, they might be ambitious. Uh, they might want, you know, that I mentioned social mobility. So I don't, and I think that is part of our whole idea of meritocracy. I mean, that's part of the American dream. It's not to go down, it's going to go up. I mean, obviously everyone can't go up because that doesn't work in capitalism. Um, but you could, you know, you could argue that economic growth can benefit over generations. And so this is again, people now, I think I had mentioned the whole kind of global system. And now it's not just even the nation, uh, you know, is porous, like the boundaries are porous. We're seeing even in, 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 in the Canadian context, which we hadn't seen before, people walking across, um, you know, risking their lives, people dying to come to, to Canada, crossing um, the US border for all sorts of different kinds of reasons. And in, in Canada, South Asian is a social construct, but it's very leaky because we have, there are lots of people who have origins from India, from Pakistan, from Bangladesh, from Sri Lanka, um, and others, those are the four main ones. Also, of course, Nepal as well. And they are, but they're organized differently. Some people are coming as economic migrants um, because they're being recruited because of their education. We have, we're having an in increasing uh, issue with um, international students who are being exploited for, you know, in terms of paying international fees, but also not being really supported and facing great deal of mental health challenges, um, as well as their whole kind of being detained and deported back. I mean, there's all sorts of things um, there as well. So again, this is a positionality. We have people who have migrated from the Caribbean with, um, with South Asian ancestries, Fiji, South Africa, East Africa. So it's actually very complex. So this is why that container, it might be convenient for statisticians, but I don't think it tells as much about people. Uh, and their experiences. And so I think if you're an administrator of a school or university, or if you're an organizational leader, you wanna be able to go back to that earlier idea of those cultural differences, to not presume that all these, you know, brown people will have the same kind of experience. Like, you know, um, they'll speak Indian. I mean, I, I really, I cringe when I, you know, they will like this food, you know, it's those kinds of stereotypes that reincorporated 
we see that in some of our popular culture as well. And so I think it is, again, having greater complexity, um, better sense of history, um, and um, also what is happening geopolitically as well. If I could just mention a little bit and connect this, uh, the geopolitical part with the um, what we're seeing in Canada, I think you're seeing in the US as well in terms of um, the positioning now of China um, as an adversary, uh, as a both, you know, economic, technological foe, but also in terms of compromising our democracy. This is this is an issue right now in Canada around this idea of foreign interference in the Chinese government. And so the and so what happens is that then Chinese Canadians can get easily get scapegoated. We saw them getting scapegoated for uh, COVID-19 because it originated in China. So again, it's you think all this information and people go back to these very really it, this this idea of the yellow peril is like from the 18th, 19th century. And you go back to these old ideas. So the thing is that these old ideas are still circulating somewhere in our uh, the, those, those social media echo chambers and what have you and other kinds of platforms. And then our job is to kind of present, you know, with more of that nuance and the diversity and depth. Uh, but again, you've got to have those four where you have those deeper conversations. And if you just are saying inclusion, then you may not be getting there because you're not looking at how people are positioning themselves in different kinds of ways and what could be sort of informing them, um, even if they don't even think much about it. It's true. And you know, Nathan, when, when we talk about organizational culture and we talk about tools and strategies, I always like to give people action-oriented strategies. And so there are inventories that allow you to understand your mindset, when, one of which is called the intercultural development inventory. Where is your mindset as it relates to your levels of comfort across difference? And then we have internally a cultural values inventory that doesn't assess, but it just um, it analyzes how you express different cultural values like loyalty, whether you're inter, inter, independent or interdependent, your view of time and how that what that means in relationship to the people you work with, but also how to have better conversations with people who are not like you. A lot of times it starts with just humanizing the workplace and talking to somebody and, and understanding how to ask questions out of curiosity without tokenizing people, without just saying, oh, you're this gender or you're this uh, ethnic background. You tell me what it's like to speak Indian, right? These kinds of, <laughs> you know, these assuming these things about people and the asking, what is your native language? And going from a place of ed education rather than ignorant assumption. Mm -hmm. And and really that's what I want to see. I want to see a culture that's uh, multi-cultures, national cultures that are bathed in love, not fear, uh, that are that really are driven forward by action-oriented strategies that allow us just to be vulnerable in a way that allows leaders to recognize when they don't know something and allows them to say, I'm willing to learn and I'm willing to model, even if it's clumsily, how to humanize the people that we work with. And, and that's what we're trying to do. And it's slowly but surely. And I, I try to do it just from modeling myself. But anyway, I just want to say that a lot, all of these things I know are big concepts, but there are strategies for helping us do this slowly but surely over years. Nitin, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. any, any last words on that? Or? I, I really like Renee's idea, ideas and concepts of foregrounding 
um, that sense of humility, the sense of curiosity. I find curiosity uh, is disappearing in many ways. I, I think mm -hmm. we are bombarded by information and you know we live in a culture of destruction. So it is hard then um, to kind of activate a sense of curiosity for some, but I think that's a great place to start because I think that's where you can, if you're curious, you can have that conversation um, and get to somewhere else. Like you, I'm not saying you're not gonna have the prejudice and the stereotypes and the bias, you are. You need to be aware of those things. You can do those kinds of trainings and exercises to become more aware that develops your sort of idea of self-awareness. Often we think about becoming, learning about other cultures. The first thing we've got to do is learn about ourselves. Like, and that takes some sense of interiority, that takes self-reflection, that takes a lot of work you need to do yourself and recognize you are changing, you are evolving, you, you know, it's not going to be all the same. So if, if, if you understand that you are not just one thing, then maybe you can also say, well, that other person is not just one thing or one experience or one where they are right now doesn't define their whole reality and sort of give that what as Brene was saying, that humanizing them. Often we kind of dehumanize people. It's like rehumanization. And I think that can also be built in to the ways in which leaders design their, their learning programs or strategy programs where they give a little bit more space for that, for mistakes, for learning, for you know forgiveness, for humility, uh, because they want to have people who are engaged in the process of growth. Like this is, I think, a really important talent de development strategy, professional development strategy where people are wanting to grow with you. Um, I mentioned, you know, low employee morale, if people are turning off and they think they have to just do this, another e-learning, like, why are we doing those things? Like, why are we reinforcing um, disengagement and distraction? We want people to connect. Uh, and it can be done well virtually as well as we are doing. It can be done in person, it can be done in all sorts of ways. But I think that idea of that's going to build their competence, that's going to build their comfort. That's going to build like those bridges between those layers of differences. Yeah. Yeah. No. Excellent. Well. Well said. Well said, Nathan. And you know, it, there's so much that we've talked about. You know, talking about being mixed race. Renee, you and I are 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 the same. We're both mixed race. You know, we talk about. You know, do you speak Indian, even though you could come from Trinidad? Right when they or Guyana, right when they don't even have that. Although religion, there's a commonality, but not so much in in culture because they all speak predominantly. They speak English, right? And then you have, you know, and then there's just so much here. And this is why, when I first had this, the the the, the topic itself, you know, I've talked about it. For, I put, I was nuances and in brackets the the complexities of cultural diversity. Now it's actually take out those those parentheses. And there's so much complexity to this work, whether it's from, we've talked about it from the organizational level, we've talked about it from the cultural level, then we've talked about it from the intercultural level, right? So there's so much complexity to cultural diversity that we need to think of. And at the end of the day, you know, we need to take a step back and, you know, as they say, we need to, you know, we need to have that 30 second pause but in reality, when we're having these conversations, it's really it's really a 90 second pause of, you know, not only do we have to pause about it from an emotional intelligence perspective, but add to that the cultural intelligence perspective, the cultural, you know, not only we go, we have this 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 um, uh, um, continuum, if you will, of going from cultural competency 
it's a cultural intelligence and as you as you rightly put um you know cultural humility so you know so i want to close off by talking about all of this and to say to understand and, and and to to overcome these complexities it's a very difficult path uh to to accomplish and overcome so so in other words i mean i may have answered the question but to to the both of you um you know there is a path there is a path forward and what does it take to to you know for practice how do you know how do not only as equity practitioners but as just human beings what does it take to practice this so so uh nitin go ahead well i think while you were speaking andre i was thinking about the idea of um, vision like what vision do you have for the future and we could have sort of just very dystopic or dystopian kinds of visions of more violence, more fear, more anxiety, uh, more addictions, more people distracted in their bubbles, closed off from the world. Uh, or we could think, you know, we could create more opportunity, more, more uh, sustainability, more equity, more understanding, more vulnerability, more compassion. Uh, and I think that, you know, if you sort of think about it that way, you might think, okay, well, I prefer this. Like, I want to be on this side uh, with sort of compassion and empathy and equity and what have you. And how do I do that? Like, well, I have to start with myself first and whatever I do. Like, and that's hard because you, know, you, you can get very frustrated. Um, you can feel there is a lot of antagonism out there. And I think if, as you said, the 90 second pause sometimes it even takes longer than that. I, for me, where I really, you know, even have to reflect back on something that might happen a few months ago in, a, um, in, a, in an environment, I think, you know, why did I respond in that way? How could I do something differently? And that's where, that's that self-reflection, that's that self-awareness. We're always imperfect, but we can be, commit, we can be committed to improve. Um, and I think that has to be there. Um, that we can actually do better and what have you. And I think that does mean that questioning a lot of the, the pessimism, the critique, um, the um, the kind of the the anger, we have to get to that uh, to try to engage with it, but we can't let it determine our larger mm. vision. Yeah, yeah. I really like what you're saying there, Nathan. And I would drill down even um, a little bit more specifically. We, our model for cultural intelligence is guided by the values of curiosity, empathy, compassion. So it was nice to hear that. So empathy though is built of four skills according to Teresa Wiseman and that's our ability to understand somebody's viewpoint or perspective, our ability to understand their emotions, not necessarily feel them. We can't always feel, uh, we're either we're not equipped or we're not we need to put up a boundary or whatever. The third is remaining non-judgmental, big one. And the fourth is communicating an understanding of that person's perspective. So to do any of those four skills of empathy, we have to start with listening. And if we can start to do that and listening to listen, has is my sound okay? Oh yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. listening to, I heard a little click and I was like, oh no, just, just in time for things to, to, to technology to fail, um, excuse me. So, so for us to be able to lead through listening, because so often we want to uh, lead with action, but I say to leaders back up first and start to listen. Learn first before you lead. That's culturally intelligent leadership because otherwise we lead thinking that we know what somebody else wants. And what's that? That's imperialism, <laughs> that's colonialism. That is, that is not responsive. 
But the counterpart, according to Esther Perel, of empathy is self-awareness. So going back to what Nithin was saying, that as we grow, as we learn about who we are, we begin to better understand, okay, am I listening? How am I listening? How do I need to listen better? And as I move forward to lead, how, what am I learning and how can I apply this learning in culturally responsive ways? So that's where I want all of us to start as, as, as individuals and recognizing that leadership is in every level. I am a leader as a spouse, as a friend, as a parent, as a neighbor, as a pet owner, as yes, a, an owner of a company, all of those things. But my, I say to my children, if you cannot demonstrate kindness to us as your family, you don't get to go out and play with your friends. And the same thing with me as an individual, I don't get to lead a company on cultural intelligence unless I can demonstrate it in my home and be the same person within as I am outside. So that's where I think we all should be. And I, I really, really want a world where we all become that way. And we'll see if we're willing to be humble enough to get there. Now that's, you know, like I said at the outset, it's, it's, you know, it's, we need to be better humans. And I think in the work that we do, that is our intention. You know, there's professions that are out there that are just, like you said, action oriented, um, action first. It, it's, you know, related to the colonialism, the imperialism that exists. Um, but we need to take a step back, think about who we are as individuals, as people of a family, uh, representing our organizations or, or our companies, et cetera, and, uh, and understand that this world is not easy. It is very complex and there are a lot of nuances uh, overall. So with that, um, I wanna thank the both of you for having an engaging conversation. You know, we had an engaging conversation prior to this and we're having it again. And I, and I, and I really appreciate having the both of you on. And I thank you for your insights, your wisdom, your knowledge and your experience uh, to uh, to bring to the table and uh, and for our audience to 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 listen in on. So uh, thank you for this. Uh, I really appreciate it. So with that, um, you know, I want to just uh, extend a, a just a last little uh, um, uh, notification in terms of how people can reach you. So uh, Renee, how can people reach you? And then Nitin, same thing. They can learn more about us at www.culturallyintelligent.com and also on LinkedIn, on Instagram, where our two biggest presences are at Culturally Intelligent, our handle. You can also email us at learn at culturallyintelligent.com. We're happy to meet with you for a quick conversation or for long-term strategy and connections. Thank you, by the way, Andre, for having us on. Go ahead. No problem. Thank you. Thank you, Renee. Thank you, Andre. Well, uh, people can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Nithin, N-I-T-I-N-D-E-C-K-H-A. The H often gets forgotten. Uh, they could email me. Uh, I have a little uh, consultancy called Enliven Learning. And so it's um, enlivenlearning.net. Uh, um, and then my email is ndeka, um, N-D-E-C-K-H-A dot enliven, which is E-N-L-I-V-E-N at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to talk to anybody from any part of the world. Great. Uh, we'll make sure to put those in the uh, show notes. Uh, so again, thank you very much. And, uh, you know, I look forward to having another uh, conversation just like this in the, in the near future. Um, just to let people know that I'm down to my last uh, two 
webcast before I shut it down for the summer. So, uh, yeah. so there we go. Um, you know, so stay tuned for the last two episodes coming up. And if there's people out there that wish to be on my uh, webcast for season three, by all means, just uh, hit me up on uh, on YouTube or on Instagram or on LinkedIn. Uh, more than likely, we can have a conversation there, just like I did with Renee and uh, Nathan. And uh, and this is how we came to be. So with that, I bid you adieu and uh, have yourselves a wonderful day. Take care. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you.